are the great outdoors probably my favourite topic in the world? And hiking, even better. Definitely my favourite way to spend time outdoors. Hello, and thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world, an aspect of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, Ian Oliver, also known as the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. getting a bit nippy now isn't it well to be honest i'm feeling a little warmer than i should be as i just had two weeks away in toronto detroit and iceland where temperatures averaged just below freezing point yes i took shoes toronto was a slightly different adventure to my normal as i spent it with a traveling companion my friend vicky from orlando in florida it's rare that i spend so much time in someone else's company but you may be pleased to know we didn't kill each other nor did we manage to set fire to the apartment we were staying in. Now, I mention this because we met up for a day in Houston, Texas, when I was travelling in the USA in April, and uh, we nearly did. A badly placed cushion near a lit candle. Whoops. Seems the owners, a management company, didn't mind too much, though. It made a pleasant change to have company, but as you'll hear later, it's something I do need to get used to. I went to Detroit because I figured Toronto seemed an awfully long way to visit for just five days, so I wondered where else I could visit while I was in the area. It's a place I know a bit about by default. I used to date a woman who went to college near Lansing, so I've ended up knowing quite a few people with connections in the area. Uh, Michigan is the state I've been to most frequently in the USA. But apart from a couple of hours downtown in 2013, I've never been to Detroit City itself. It's got a bit of a, hmm, shall we say, reputation amongst North Americans, but I found it to be quite an interesting and decent place to visit for a city break. I'll blog about it soon, I suspect, because it's one of those sorts of lesser-known travel destinations that is really my forte. Iceland, however, was an accidental visit. I was planning my route back, and it seemed cheaper to fly via Reykjavik Airport. I asked around a few people on Twitter, and wondered whether it was worthwhile spending a couple of nights there while I was there, because I was passing through, and Twitter generally said, yes, don't be silly, of course it is. I found that Reykjavik itself was an odd little place. Uh, Amongst other things, I visited a repurposed public toilet that was now a museum that's dedicated to Icelandic punk music. I also went to a museum entirely devoted to pickled penises, and I drank the most expensive beer I've ever had. At about 14.50 kroner for 0.2 litres, that works out at around £26.60 a pint. I must caveat and say that most of the beers on offer were less than half that price. Granted, £10 a pint is still expensive, but I was Iceland, I was kind of expecting that. This particular beer was a, a, a special beer. It was from a, a local microbrewery. It was about 11.5%. It was dark, and as it had been matured in whiskey barrels, it had quite a kick to it. I personally thought it was a great beer, but let's be honest, at that price, I wasn't going to let myself be disappointed by it. Other than that, I've not been doing a heck of a lot since my last pod. 
Following on from World Travel Market, I've written a couple of pictures to tourist boards. While this might not sound like a big thing to many of you, it's the first time I've ever put myself out there so much. So it's kind of a big step I've crossed here. I may not hear anything from them, but at least now I've tried. Also, off the back of WTM activity, I seem to have won 20% off a tour with a company called Sibway, who run tours to Siberia. So that's definitely something I'm looking into doing and following up with. I've always liked the idea of Siberia. I think it's partly with me, the nostalgia of the feeling of growing up in the 1980s and knowing it was just a closed-off part of an already closed-off country, starting to the mystery of it. I went through it on a train in 2006, but apart from stopping in places like Irkutsk and Novosibirsk for about 30 minutes, the closest I got was seeing it through the somewhat dirty train window. I've also done some admin on my website adding show notes to the podcast pages so now everyone that's contributed previously has a link to their website. I've possibly fixed the issue by which my previous pod on reverse culture shock wasn't showing up anywhere. And oh my, why did no one tell me that sound quality on that pod was awful? Oh, wait, because no one knew it was there. And I've also switched from HTTP to HTTPS with the aid of a plug-in and that made it seem like quite a pretty harmless affair. I've also noticed that the example I use of obscurity, of no one writing a blog about Whaley Thorns, meaning I must rank highly for it on Google, turns out to have been a lie, since searching for it brings up the usual hotel booking sites. I've no idea if there's a hotel there, but I'm guessing those sites just pack their pages with references to every named place in the country. The other thing that Google brings up, of course, that should have been blindingly obvious, is references to the railway station. I should have guessed. Um... Now, following on from my last pod, I wanted to talk about something remarkably daft that I seem to have agreed to do next year that most of you now probably already know because I've been blogging about it. But let's start at the beginning. At the end of October, I attended a motivational festival called Yesterville, run by the optimistically sounding The Yes Tribe. The ethos behind the festival, indeed the whole movement, is Say Yes More. That is to say... When you have an idea, no matter how minor or outlandish, believe in your own capabilities of being able to do it, regardless of your worries. The chances are your worries can be mitigated or worked around in some way. And as I'll say in a minute, they're very fond of micro-adventures, the small adventures that you can do in your everyday life. The festival took place over two days, and the bulk of the daytime was made up of talks from people who had had ideas and then acted upon them. To give you an idea of the sort of ideas and adventures we're talking about, one woman, Helen Proudfoot, had ended up with a genuine 1940s rally bike and had the idea to ride it from her home in Suffolk all the way to the bike's original home, that is to say what remains of the rally factory in Nottingham, where it would have been made, while dressed entirely in 1940s clothing and using 1940s maps to guide her. Another chap took some Spanish literature to heart and travelled across Spain with no money and only a violin to get some, given that when he read the book he had never held a violin in his life. It made him learn about his own limits and gave him a great insight to how everyday local people think. Note that he's still not very good at the violin, but, well, better than I would be. Someone else walked to the festival from Munich, but it turns out this was a short journey by his standards. He'd spent four years walking from Munich to Tibet. Don't think, by the way, that you need to have big and grandiose adventures to be accepted by the S-Drive. It's all about you and what your own limits are. They are very fond of micro-adventures, as I mentioned earlier, and the so-called 5-9 to adventures, those that you can do with the confines of a working life. 
One mother told a tale of how she was sat at the seaside with her daughter, about seven years old, saying to her that she could never do adventures as she was a working mother. And her daughter replied, but we are having an adventure. We're having breakfast on the beach. And sometimes that's all it needs to be. Saying yes doesn't mean committing to something truly bonkers. It just means welcoming an idea that you may have previously tried to find excuses not to do. They highlight the concept of the doorstep mile, the idea that the hardest part of any adventure, of any journey, is the distance between your chair or bed and the front door. Once you're outside, you've kind of already committed. So whether your adventure is to walk to a different country or just around the local park, the fact that you've stepped outside means you've started, so you might as well continue. I was a little wary about going there at first. Uh, This is stepping foot in a social environment for two days where I didn't know anyone and where it would be tricky to escape. Yesterville takes place in a field in a college campus between two villages in West Sussex, a county I'd pretty much never set foot in before, so I was more or less stuck there for the whole time. However, as soon as I stepped off the train in Billingshurst, I was surrounded by other attendees, all of whom were really friendly and made me feel at ease. I'm not saying I made any friends for life, but certainly within a few minutes I knew it wouldn't be mentally horrific to be there. And in addition, there was enough going on to keep me busy most of the days, and by the time of the late evening social dancing, I was already knackered enough to go to sleep. Asleep, by the way, that would have been better had I been able to lie flat on the ground. The field we were in was incredibly rutted, and if I could fit in my tent. Never take recommendations from a 14-year-old. While having a pop-up tent was fabulous for setting up, boom, done, I did need some help taking it down, but we managed in good time. No idea how. Indeed, on the festival notice board, someone else had posted a note saying, have a pop-up tent, great to get up, no idea how to get it down, help. My problem was one of size. It might be big enough for you, mate, but you're not one metre ninety tall. Anyway, I went there with a couple of ideas for big adventures in my mind too. Silly throwaway, oh, wouldn't it be funny if type ideas, of adventures to have and things to do. I'd no real expectation any of them would ever come to fruition because, well, big and scary. Apart from the one about taking a group of people in a London bus and driving it to Cape Town or Melbourne, Australia, Melbourne, not Derbyshire, Melbourne, the idea of a London bus rolling along the River Trent is amusing. Most of my ideas are along the idea of long-distance walking or running. You know, like running across an entire country. Belgium, in my mind. Not like my good friend Shauna Fallon, who has been planning to take a career break to run the length of Japan. Seriously, go check her plans out at shaunasworld.com. She's absolutely awesome and needs the psychological support. Running across Belgium may take five days. She's allowing five months. Anyway, for me, I was more interested in something slightly shorter, but still a challenge. The traditional idea of hiking along the Camino de Santiago from the Pyrenees to Santiago de Compostela in northern Spain, the old pilgrimage route, had been in my mind for ages, and indeed it's something I still intend to do, but probably not until I learn a bit of Spanish. Which, if you'd paid attention to my previous pods, is supposed to be in the new year, but, well, uh, my plans may have changed, as you'll see. One of those silly throwaway ideas I'd had before I went to Yesterville was the idea of hiking across Great Britain. Everyone knows about Land's End to John O'Groats, the traditional walk from not quite at the southernmost point of Great Britain to not quite the northernmost, but I felt that was a bit, you know, old hat, because everybody does that. My thought was to go west to east, from close to Ardnamurchan Point in Scotland to Lowestoft in Suffolk, partly because no one ever does that, and partly because I figured it would be shorter. Going to Yesterville inspired me to turn this silly idea into reality. Alcohol was not involved in my decision, so I left with a strong drive to make it happen. 
We all know what happens when I have great ideas like this. I muse about them for two days and then nothing happens. But I know next to nothing about long distance hiking or in fact much about hiking at all. But fortunately, I know people that do. I'd arranged to meet up anyway with my friend and local outdoor blogger Becky the Traveller a couple of days after I got back to Nottinghamshire, so I asked her advice. Well, that was the intention. The conversation went something like this. What's the longest hike you've ever done or want to do? I said. Well, she replied, I've been thinking for a while about doing Land's End to John O'Groats. Hold that thought! Within only a couple of minutes of raising the idea, not only did I have a hiking companion, but she'd already started planning the route and what we'd need to do. As one of life's, let's just see what happens next sort of people, having someone skilled at organisation is something of a godsend. Now, what is it, a month and a half after that conversation? And we not only have a plan, but that plan consists of a defined route, a pretty complete timeline, an equipment list, a list of radio stations to contact on our route. Um, we've got lists of people who are going potentially to help us while we're on our route and a number of other things that I'd simply would never have thought of. Our aim is to set off on Monday the 20th of May and we estimate that the whole trek will take pretty much exactly two months. One of the things that Becky decided was go rather west to east, was instead go east to west. Uh, there's a couple of reasons behind this. It makes the start of the trek the easy bit, so we'll have a comfortable introduction. When I say easy, what I actually mean is flat and boring. But more importantly, it means that as the trek is mostly northbound, we'll have the sun behind us rather than in our eyes. Our aim is to walk as much as possible on long distance footpaths rather than the roads. The reasoning behind this is that it makes the hike more interesting because we'll be passing through far more scenic countryside but it also means we won't have to battle traffic and we're not going to be stuck on pavements. Some of the paths do run alongside roads but only for short distances and as you can probably imagine the scenery elsewhere more than makes up for this. The slight downside is that it lengthens the route. Google Maps estimates the short trip from almost direct anyway from Lowestoft to Ardnamurchan is roughly around 530 miles. The route that we've planned out on these footpaths takes the trek to 800. Note that the distance from Land's End to John O'Groats is just over 800. Mm. Our aim is to hike around 15 miles a day on average though we're expecting the first part of the journey to be quicker because as I say flat and boring. Of course we can change our plan as we hike and we factor in rest days in convenient places so we don't burn out. Our plan route will take in some or all of the Norfolk coastal path. We did have this idea of going straight across Norfolk but we figure the Norfolk coastal path will be more interesting. It's not also not that much longer. Then we have the Neen Way running down towards Peterborough. This is the bit I'm not looking forward to. Then we have the Midshires Way, which I'd never even heard of until we were researching it. And this takes us through Leicestershire towards Derby, where we pick up the Derwent Valley Heritage Way, which is close to home, historical, quite pretty. And then from there, we go to the Pennine Way. And one of our criteria is that we walk the entire length of the Pennine Way. In case you're not sure, the Pennine Way is one of the most famous and longest long-distance footpaths in the country. And it basically goes straight up the backbone of England, as it's called. 
We may even take a detour up the mountain called the Cheviot, which is one of the highest mountains in the area, and not far off route. After that, we hit a small path called the St Cuthbert's Way, which follows roughly the England-Scotland border and commemorates an old saint. We then pick up the Southern Upland Way and then the cross-border Drover Road. These are routes through the lowlands of Scotland. And the lowlands of Scotland, in case you're not aware, everyone raves about the highlands and how scenic and remote the highlands are. Some of the lowlands are absolutely awesome and just as pretty, but a lot of people just pass through them on the way to the highlands because they don't think there's anything there. Then we hit a bit of civilization around Livingston before picking up the John Muir Way, which roughly follows close to the old Antonine Wall. And from there we pick up the West Highland Way, possibly with a side route to Ben Nevis, because, well, it's there, it's Britain's highest mountain, and we can. From the end of the West Highland Way, we reach Fort William, which is only three days' hike from Ardnamurkin, and we haven't got a clue how to do that bit because there are no footpaths, but this is Scotland. We have a right to roam in Scotland, so it'll all be fine. Possibly. Don't know. But it'll certainly be very picturesque. I'm sure, 100% sure, someone must have done this before. I've not found any record of anyone doing so, except for one cyclist. Even though it's between two of the extreme points of Great Britain, it just doesn't seem to have the kudos of the more famous route, which, as I've implied, is a fake route anyway. Or maybe I'm just a bloody-minded, nerdy data analyst type who needs that preciseness and accurateness, else it doesn't count. This is also why I don't count countries. One thing we haven't sorted out officially yet is accommodation. I mean, we'll certainly be camping at some points, and one of the things that we're still debating is what to take with regards to camping. Do we carry the camping gear with us all the route, or do we only do it for some of the route? What am I going to camp in? Are we going to take a tent? Given my experiences of small tents, that might not be an issue, but what's the alternative? Bivvies with with tarps? Who knows? Something we need to discuss. Um, but we'll also be making use of B&Bs, guest houses, Airbnbs, couch surfing, etc. Pretty much anything we can find. My mind goes back to a friend of mine, actually my lodger, and her then-boyfriend, this was a few years back, they were camping in Cornwall, and I got a phone call about 2.30pm at work going, Ian! I need you to find us a hotel near Lanarth. Quickly, the rain is horizontal. We are, of course, open to people offering us a place to stay in return for help around the house or cooking or the like, especially if you like curry or stir-fries. Now, I've obviously never done anything quite this major before. I know I can walk 15 miles a day, but I've no idea if I can walk 15 miles a day over a period of weeks rather than days. It'll also be very strange to go hiking with someone else. Usually I travel solo, so spending even a couple of days with a travel companion feels a little weird to me, never mind two months. However, she normally travels and hikes solo herself, so hopefully everything will work out. And if it doesn't, if we're both carrying tents, we can always just, right, I don't want to talk to you now, I'll see you tomorrow, I'm going to camp over there. Won't be a problem. We are going to take a couple of short practice walks over the course of the next few months to test out equipment and see how we feel in a proper hiking setting. Indeed, earlier this week we did just that. We had one night in a yurt in a nearby Peak District town and did a couple of short hikes around the area. It was quite foggy and on the second day very wet, so we didn't get to see as much as we'd like. But at least we learnt that we can keep similar pace and we don't argue with each other over map reading. Nor are we mithered by each other's little foibles, but she as a Generation Xer, 
does take more selfies than the average millennial. All that said, we're also definitely open to people joining us on our trek. Whether you join us for just a mile or so or a couple of days, we're more than happy to have people tag along. It's a great way to meet people and it'd be lovely to explore some of the British countryside together. One question that did come up in our early planning was, should we raise money for charity? Now, I know for many people, the whole reason for doing something is the charity aspect and the knowledge that they're raising money for charity is the sole reason they are miserably walking along a steep uphill trail in the rain or thinking in the plane up before their parachute jump. I don't want to do this. Be aware, therefore, that I originally had no intention of connecting this walk with charity fundraising. I'm doing this walk purely because I can and it might be fun possibly except for the bit around day seven when we're hiking across the fens down perfectly straight roads surrounded by completely flat scenery. At least the hills later on in the route will be pretty interesting and challenging. However, I owe Sandwell Mine £238 following the closure of an old social group I was chair of back in 2005, not long after we had a charity slave auction. The money was just resting in my account. Interestingly, the task I was bought for gardening (laughs) never happened as the couple that bought me broke up not long afterwards and the two of them ended up with other things to worry about including if memory serves a huge box on the street in front of the house full of porn but anyway for me after a failure to do the great north run in 2012 because of injury possibly shin splints although due to my impatience i still have the remnants of that injury even today as it's never really healed properly and the ache flares up every now and then it's yet another reason I prefer running barefoot rather than in training shoes. So this is the next big charity thing I'll have attempted where I have the opportunity to repay that debt. I haven't forgotten. So yeah, I have a Just Giving page if you want to donate. And why mind in the first place, notwithstanding my long-standing financial debt? Well, to be honest, if you concentrate on some of my tweets or listen between the lines on previous podcasts, it should be clear it's a natural place for me to go. I mean, despite how it feels sometimes, I know my mental health isn't anywhere near as precarious as several of my friends, and I'll talk a little more about how the outdoors makes me feel about this later. But the very fact I refer to my friends in that sentence is justification enough for it to matter to me. I'd love to know if you have any questions about my plans, whether technical, logistic, or just plain what type questions. I'll collate a few and go through them in a future pod. Obviously, as the hike will be on long-distance footpaths as much as possible, I'll be spending two months in what you might call the Great Outdoors. A few of my Twitter friends also love the Great Outdoors. Here, for instance, is Vicky from These Vagabond Shoes talking about hiking. I was really excited to hear about your hike for next year. Walking is one of my favourite ways of just getting outside and experiencing the outdoors. Um, You move through the landscape but at a pace that lets you just feel and connect with what's going on round about you. You're slow enough in your movement that you can read the shape of the landscape and feel the weather as it's changing and moving across. And you're not insulated from things like the smells, the the sounds, the birdsong, the... um, buzzing of bees and things, it really brings you so much closer into your setting than travelling through in a car or by train or something. And I get a similar feeling actually when I'm sailing. We often move so much slower than people might expect us to, but you are right there and exposed and feeling everything that's happening as you're going.
We'll hear more from Vicky later, but here's my future hiking companion Becky from Becky the Traveller giving her thoughts on hiking in the great outdoors. When I think of the outdoors, I imagine green hills and mountains, woods full of nature and wildlife, and coastal trails looking out to sea. I'm a hiker and I absolutely love hiking. It gives me freedom and also gives me a well-earned break from working on my laptop or phone. That's why I love the outdoors. I live in a small town in the East Midlands of England. I've already done a podcast all about hometown travel and the interesting things to see and explore here, but I didn't really talk about how much countryside there is around. I'm only an hour away from the Peak District with all the marvellous hiking trails over there, including Stanage Edge, Mantor, the Lady Bar Reservoir areas, which have been in the news recently because low water levels here and neighbouring Derwent Reservoir were revealing the remains of the villages that were submerged when the reservoirs were created. Uh, but even closer to home, there are you know a series of old railway lines where the tracks have been lifted and the track beds turn into trails or, in one or two cases, cycle paths. The advantage of being in mining territory means that there's a lot of these that crisscross the region. The old lines that serve as the collieries and now provide easy walking links between the country parks that now sit where the collieries were. Paths like the Five Pits Trail, clues in the name, folks, and the Teversal Trail, again where once trains connected villages and industry, and now footpaths connect villages and pubs. The other side is Sherwood Forest, less walkable perhaps, partly, I guess, due to much of the land being owned by wealthy and traditional landowners. Part of the area is known as the Dukeries, because in such a small space there were a number of ducal fiefs and manor houses, Welbeck Abbey, Thorsby Hall and Clumber House, to name but three. And maybe the area is less scenic, but there are still footpaths that weave their way over the land and through the woods. It's certainly a good contrast to the larger cities that lie north and south of it. As it happens, I'm particularly attracted to forests. The route I used to take to my office had me walking through two small woodland areas, and even on a misty, foggy morning, it was still a pleasure to wander through them. The one nearest my office explodes with bluebells in the spring too, so it gets really beautiful, an oasis of calm near a busy road and a business park. I tended not to walk through them in the dark winter evenings, though, not because of any safety concerns, nor even any worries of coming across people uh, <clears throat> doing things better done in bedrooms. Not that I'd know anything about that, of course. But more because I'm a klutz with no spatial awareness or balance, so walking through an unlit forest at night generally means tripping over tree roots or slipping on leaves. My forest love, I think, comes from when I was a teenager. Yes, I played role-playing games and generally I had wood elven characters, and no one collapses in shock at the revelation of either of those things. But in the real world, when I was nearly 12, my family moved to the town of Ainsdale, a suburb of the seaside resort of Southport on England's northwest coast. Nearby was the small town of Formby, noted for a pine forest and red squirrel nature reserve. My uncle used to take his dog walking in that nature reserve, and I'd go with him, and then I'd go running, either through the woods on a circular path, or I'd take less trodden paths and run all the way back home. It was about three to four miles, depending on the route. It felt very liberating to run those trails. It was just me and the trees, breathing in that pine scent and the sea air, hidden from view so almost no one knew I was there. I felt free to be me, who I wanted to be. That's a great feeling. And this leads into something I mentioned earlier, mental health. Being honest, walking outside is one thing I do to self-medicate. It's not a cure, but certainly the act of walking, ideally through the countryside, but even a short wander through my hometown, can be enough to at least stop me thinking about stuff for a short while. Time enough for me to get distracted by other things. 
Of course, walking alone in the forest or on grassy plains in foothills of mountains is the best place for me. I can feel the fresh breeze and be far from the maddening sounds of civilised life. As an aside, I've been informed on Twitter that Tuesday, that's December the 11th, is International Mountain Day, a UN-designated day to promote mountains. Not in the mountains are great places to visit way. In fact, at times it's the opposite. Its aim is to show the world the importance of mountains and mountain environments to civilization and humanity and how what we do to the mountains affects what the mountains do to us. This year's theme is Mountains Matter and you can use a hashtag. Think of how they provide water to us. Think of the cultural heritage that exists in mountain areas. Think of the food and the biodiversity in mountain climates. Although I hate the stuff with a passion, remember that coffee is one of the major ways people live, and coffee tends to be grown on the sides of hills and mountains. I've seen it a lot in places like Ghana and Indonesia. But to that, I'd like to add that mountains matter on that human level. What makes them matter to me is that they give me a place I can go to tune out of the stresses of modern life, to recover my mind, to let me think and inspire me. It's interesting to note that many of my favourite trips have been to places with wide open spaces, countrysides, forests, mountains. Kyrgyzstan particularly was absolutely stunning. I did a couple of hikes in the foothills of the Tian Shan mountain range. I went to the Ala Archer National Park and Songkol Lake. Walking down a trail in pure green land with a small rushing stream nearby, bright blue skies above and distant mountains capped with white snow, it almost felt like I was walking in the middle of a children's painting of a mountainscape. Added to that, I had the feeling that although I was in a small group, we were pretty much the only people for miles around, so I felt comfortably alone and restful. I had similar feelings in both Chile's Elki Valley and in the mountains of Lesotho, The only other people around these places were local farmers. These were places where nature was firmly in control. I am in these places, but I'm certainly not of them. But as long as you respect them, they'll happily give back to you. As an aside, both of these were places where I found myself on the back of a horse-like creature. Yet I'll admit, I can't easily tell a difference between a pony and a horse. Donkeys are smaller though, right? Which is an interesting way to travel through the countryside, but... Not one I'm particularly fond of in the long term. Better than camels, though. My lodger, who has been to Egypt, has stated that under no circumstances am I ever to ride a camel if I value my backside. One of my only worries about the countryside sometimes, though, is coming across wild animals. Well, animals, by which I mean farm animals, or cows. I hate cows. They scare me. Huge creatures with a bad attitude. They're plotting to take over the world, I tell you. You walk past them and they stare at you. Just stare. Their eyes follow you as you walk past them. And then they jog after you. Not run, just jog, keeping their distance, like some kind of creepy stalker. I've been chased by cows a couple of times and it's not a pleasant experience. Apparently my hiking companion Becky agrees with me, which is going to be interesting if we come across any on our 800 mile route. Anyway... As I say, I've got several friends online who love the outdoors. You heard from Vicky earlier, but here she is with a bit more of her story. So from a very young age, I think I've always felt at home in the outdoors and a sense of being comfortable and being able to be myself. I'm from quite a small village in a rural area of Scotland and our family holidays were always to the more remote parts in the north and west. Growing up, it was very much a sense of there's no such thing as bad weather, just the wrong clothing. And you're not lost, you just haven't found where you are yet. 
and that came very much from my dad, who's uh, quite an active and outdoorsy guy um, and had a lot of experience out in the the hills and in the more wilder areas. And it really let me build up my own confidence in my abilities and um, an appreciation of some of the things that you you get from being out there. It's this sense of freedom and space and the ability to do things without being perhaps observed or judged or anything like that. You can make your own discoveries, whatever scale they're coming at. And um, the feeling of adventure. And actually, thinking about that, it's something that's quite important to me. You talk a lot about travelling as an introvert. And yeah, I would say that I'm quite an introverted person. I'm quite shy. But when it comes to being in the, the outdoors, actually... I'm very competent and confident and I'm probably a leader in that sort of a setting and would have the knowledge and the ability and the confidence in myself to come to the front in a situation. Um, And I think, yeah, I've never really thought about it in too much depth before like this, but that's something that is very important to me. The other thing that I find very important about the great outdoors is the connection that I have to the natural world and it's influenced me greatly. It's led to me working in environmental conservation Um, but what I want from travel experiences are very similar to what I get from my work, the sort of fulfilment. It's being outside experiencing the effects of the weather or noting things like the changes in the season or the sounds that I hear around me, the smells, everything going on and really having sort of that deeper um, feeling of knowing what's going on on a larger scale. Another of my online friends is Zoe Holmes from the wonderfully named Splods Blogs who, as you will hear, has a great background in outdoor life. Hi, I'm Zoe. I'm a blogger over at splodsblogs.co.uk. I'm a co-founder of the Outdoor Bloggers Network here in the UK. And I'm one of Ordnance Survey's Get Outside champions and have been for a couple of years. Ah, the great outdoors, probably my favourite topic in the world. And hiking, even better. Definitely my favourite way to spend time outdoors. No doubt about that at all. I love to hike. Walking, hiking, strolling, rambling, whatever you want to call it. That's my preferred way to get outdoors, for sure, absolute sure. And I guess the reason for that is that the outdoors to me is the place where I go to think, to breathe, to relax, to energise myself, to motivate myself, to make decisions. Um, I spend time outside every single day. I run a little campaign, a little thing on social media called One Hour Outside and basically All that is, is to try and encourage people to go out of doors, you know, with no roof, no walls, that sort of thing, 
for just one hour every day. It seems that people just don't do that anymore. And it's really sad and it really affects our well-being and our mental health and our fitness and everything. And I feel quite passionately that with just some very small tweaks to our everyday routine and our everyday habits, we can we can be better, if you like, just by spending more time outside. It's the reason I was chosen by Ordnance Survey to be one of their Get Outside champions. It's because of this this belief and passion and will to encourage other people to spend more time outdoors. As for myself, yeah, I do that by hiking. That's that's my preferred method. But you could equally um, go and play in the park or you could go swimming outdoors or you could go cycling or motorcycling, if you like, um, or whatever it is. It, as long as it's outside. I mean, just go and meet a friend for a coffee at lunchtime. Take your packed lunch out of the office and sit on the wall outside. You don't even have to go far. You don't have to climb a hill, although that's pretty good. You don't have to stay up for sunset, or although at the moment that's not that difficult because it's dark so early. But there's there's just something transformational if that's even a word about spending time outside every day it makes a huge difference to our lives and I can't stress enough how important it is to our sanity to our decision making and everything else and there's so much science around it I've read quite a lot of science around spending time outdoors in the fresh air one of the things that I learned was that our vitamin D reserves run out here in the UK. Our individual vitamin D, that's the stuff we get from natural light and sunshine, that gives us energy and uh, keeps us fresh-faced and feeling good and motivated and uh, helps wake us up in the morning, all that stuff. Our vitamin D runs out, the stores of vitamin D that we get from the summer runs out in October. So we're done, we're out. And the NHS actually recommends, apparently that people take a vitamin D supplement here in the UK. Now, we can do something about that by forcing ourselves, by making it a habit for us to go outdoors more. And if we spend an hour outside every day, then that helps us top up our stores of vitamin D, even on a cloudy day. You know the thing where they tell you that you should wear sunscreen even on a cloudy day? Yep, that. The vitamin D stuff, that's in all those sun's rays. It really does help. We make much better decisions if we go outdoors. We are less stressed if we go outdoors. And there's science to back all this stuff up. It's an absolutely fascinating topic. But science aside, it's just good. It makes you feel good. It makes you um, more awake in the afternoon. It makes you need less caffeine. It's just brilliant. We just need it. So let's do it more. I guess the great outdoors to me is all about my personal sanity, my personal growth and my ability to keep my anxiety and stress levels, well, on an even keel, I guess. Um, if I've got a big decision to make, I'll go out for a walk. If I'm angry, I'll go out for a walk. If I'm frustrated at something or I can't work something out or the words aren't flowing or whatever it is, all of those things, going out for a walk helps me. And I have to say, your walk that you're looking at doing just sounds incredible. And if I had the time to come and join you, I would absolutely do it. But we don't all have the time to just go off and do a massive trip or an expedition or whatever it is. And it doesn't have to be like that. We can all do it just a little bit every day. So that's it. Being outdoors, the great outdoors, walking, hiking, all of that stuff. Just go and do it. It's just brilliant. You won't regret it. I mean, it's not difficult. 
It makes a massive difference to our lives. And if you want to start, if you're not sure where to start, then come over onto Twitter or Instagram and have a look at the one hour outside hashtag, hashtag one hour outside, or hashtag get outside, which is the audience survey hashtag. And there is so much stuff going on, so much inspiration on there. I am certain that you will be inspired and I really hope that you are. Um, And good luck with your walk. Good luck with your walk. It sounds amazing and I'm really quite envious of this little challenge that you set yourself. Great stuff. Well, that's just about it for this week. Next time I'll almost certainly be doing an episode looking at sex. Well, not looking at it. I mean, that's why they closed one of the roads leading into nearby Newstead Abbey, because too many people were doing exactly that. Rather, I'll be discussing sexuality while travelling, and whether your sexuality makes a difference to where you visit and how you travel. Until then, have a good week, and if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Ashfield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively, go to my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now.